Hi, Greg Perry, the Historic Preservationist. Welcome to Season 2, Episode 30. Um, continuing with the Historic Preservation Series, uh, we're going to talk today about masonry. Masonry. It's going to incorporate uh, stone, brick, pointing, uh, uh, what these materials are made of, how they were used, how they deteriorate. And I'm going to divide this up into four sections, okay? So, uh, section or part one of masonry. Building products classified as masonry include stone, bricks, and terracotta. Masonry can be used in both structural and non-structural ways. So this episode discusses the use of masonry as a structural element, as well as the ornamental aspects of structural masonry materials. The general overview of masonry construction is followed by a focused look at the properties and the uses of stone and brick in their historic context. Non-structural uses of masonry flooring and roofing will also be discussed um, later on in different episodes, not in these four. So load-bearing masonry construction has existed for millennia and has consisted of simply stacking individual blocks, which could be bricks or stone, to form enclosures and load-bearing surfaces. While masonry units can still be used in load-bearing situations in small buildings, they're typically not considered load-bearing when used in curtain wall applications of modern skeletal framing systems. Masonry in these applications has become simply an enclosure system where individual terracotta and masonry panels are connected to the structural frame. Before the advent of steel and reinforced concrete skeletal framing systems, masonry construction consisted of a load-bearing wall and foundation system with the weight of the upper floors supported by the walls and the floors below it. The walls of the lowest floor supported the entire weight of the building and consequently needed to be thicker to provide the needed support. Consequently, interior spaces were, si <coughs> were smaller on lower floors, particularly in the basement and ground floor levels. Interior spaces were defined by dividing larger spaces using load-bearing masonry or wood frame panels, depending on local building customs and the, in, <coughs> the intended use of spaces, where continuous foundations were not required. Caissons or piers could be constructed to support weight from the column resting on their pier. Window and door openings tended to be smaller when arches and timber framing and lintels were available. The use of masonry for load-bearing construction was significantly enhanced by the arch, vault, and dome. Developed by Roman builders, the arch was developed by the recognition that loads could be transferred through blocks placed in a continuous semicircular or segmented alignment. By constructing temporary supports, known as false work, below the arch, vault, or dome, the blocks could be aligned to transfer loads down to a pier or column. A keystone was inserted at the top and the false work was then removed. The arch remained in place through the gravity of a combination of lateral and vertical loads pressing on the stones. 
The principle used to create the arch also resulted in the vault and the dome. A vault was an arch construction extended laterally from the arch to form a barrel. Further development led to groin vaults where two or more barrel vaults intersected. For a dome, the construction practices for an arch were built up to the keystones in a 363 configuration. Once the vault or dome was completed, the area above could be filled with masonry to construct the upper floors. Arches and vaults have formed the fundamental approach to a number of construction systems, including those historically used for churches, civic buildings, and mill buildings. Throughout history, the evolution of construction practices has been motivated by the desire to build cheaper and cheaper, faster and easier. Numerous efforts were made in the 18th century to recover many of the early, earlier fabrication methods for correct construction developed by the Romans and other ancient societies that had been much lost over time. With the su success of these efforts, the limitation of load-bearing masonry construction became more clearly problematic. The volume and massing required to achieve taller buildings were prohibitive in already congested cities. The growth of cities has long been directly related to the time it took to build new buildings and construct large load-bearing masonry. These limitations were further a combination of the limitations hastened and developed and the development of skeletal structural framing systems that could be constructed more and more quickly and offered more space than their masonry counterparts. The second half of the 19th century saw the emergence of skeletal framing systems where building loads were supported by the frame rather than by the load-bearing walls themselves. In the U.S., this transfer was accomplished by using two separate materials, steel and reinforced concrete. Advances in steel production in the United States and the refinement of reinforced concrete systems in Europe and <coughs> the United States created new ways to construct late, later and taller buildings. By the end of the century, the shift away from load-bearing masonry construction led to the demise of masonry as a major load-bearing system in many future buildings. With the introduction of thin stone veneer at the turn of the 20th century, masonry completed its transition from non-load-bearing enclosure systems. Terracotta, cast stone, and thin stone veneer products used with a skeletal framing system was the predominant construction system used on many large buildings in the United States from 1900 through the 1930s. The various finishes on the exposed face of terracotta were formulated to match the appearance of stone. Ceramic veneer systems originally derived from terracotta manufacturing technology and ultimately refined by the 1930s continued use through the 1950s. Cast stone could be made to match the colors of quarried stone. Thin stone veneer was natural stone to a nominal thickness of two to four inches. Thus, terracotta, cast stone, and thin stone veneer were seen as economically attractive alternatives to stone. Plus, it helped extend 
the amount of stone that was available. Advances in fabrication methods for aluminum and other architectural metals led to a shift in certain wall technologies after World War II. Economists, in shifting aesthetic taste, reduced the use of masonry products in favor of a range of architectural metals and glazing products used in panelized curtain walls. Likewise, advances, advances in reinforced concrete systems, cast concrete shell structures, and precast fabrication systems move construction practices away from stone, brick, and terracotta for large public, commercial, and institutional buildings. In retrospect, masonry started with simple handheld units or cast materials and evolved to reach a substantial size at the peak of its total load-bearing usage in the 19th century. The introduction of structural framing systems in the late 19th century brought about a decline in masonry use for load-bearing construction in large buildings and in its modern use as a load-bearing enclosure system. While masonry is still available for load-bearing construction, economic factors have often continued to make other structural systems more financially attractive. So we're going to move into stone now. Our first form of masonry we're going to discuss here today. Stone has long been admired for its strength and the durability it has provided from the destructive forces that ravaged lesser materials. The earliest stone buildings used rough, undressed stones in crudely stacked walls. However, as the skills and technology for shaping dressed stone improved, stone became a display of wealth and power. Throughout the pre-Columbian and European settlement periods in America and in the recorded history of other settlements worldwide, stone was an important building material as the various temples, castles, fortifications, and other works of stones demonstrate today. This perception continues today whether these constructions are still in use or exist only as ruins. Despite the common use of wood and lesser construction materials, historically, the important buildings today and the major remnants of buildings from earlier civilizations are often those made of stone. Stone and doors, there's no doubt. Building stone is crafted from naturally occurring rock found within the Earth's crust. Rock is classified by the way it was formed, sedentary and metamorphic. Certain rock was formed from volcanic action that created molten rock and then cooled slowly in a network of tightly interconnected mineral crystals. The most common type rock is granite. Sedentary rock formed as various minerals and materials were deposited in beds of ancient oceans. These materials include weathered rock particles captured from eroding rock and transported to the sedimentation site by water and wind. These particles are classified by grain size from smallest to largest as clay, silt, and or sand. The weight from the accumulation of materials along with the pressure of the water, compress the materials into continuous rock layers. Commonly, as sea life in the water died, calcium from its remnants was added to the accumulating sediment and formed fossils. A unique characteristic of sedimentary rock is a structural weakness 
due to the formation of bedding planes. These planes form, form parallel to the water surface and are caused by variations in the materials being deposited. Two common examples of sedentary rocks are sandstone and limestone. Metamorphic rocks originally were indigenous or sed sedentary rocks that, due to the high pressures and temperatures of the Earth's crust, crust were formed into denser, more crystalline structures than the original rock itself. Metamorphic rock is characterized by small crystals of the original mineral in the sedentary or the original rock surface itself. In some instances, though, rock was also fractured by movement of the Earth's crust that allowed magma to form veins or intrusions of different mineral crystals. This veining is common in marble. Examples of metamorphic rock include marble, which is made from limestone, quartzite, made from sandstone, and genes, made from granite. Stone is obtained by quarrying. While the equipment for, used for quarrying has changed with time, the underlying progress or process has changed very little. Rock found on the Earth's surface may have numerous structural defects due to weathering, which causes fissures and clefts. When a quarry site for stone was identified, the overburden of weathered stone and soil was removed. The remaining exposed rock could then be cut into a series of terraces. Although used to remove overburden, blasting was generally not used to cut stone since blasting created insipid cracks within the stone. These cracks later caused the stone to deteriorate. Removing stone relies on the fact that stone was relatively low tensile. While pressure is applied, stone will separate along the series of channels or a row of holes drilled into a specific depth. The Romans used wooden wedges inserted into the channels or holes and then soaked them with water. The soaking caused the wood to swell, which split the rock along the channel or rows of holes. By the early 18th century, drills were used to cut a row of holes into the rock, where a series of metal plugs or wedges, known as feathers, were placed into each hole. The plug was placed between the wedges and the row of plugs in the scam was struck simultaneously to exert force on the wedges. When sufficient force was created by the wedges, the stone broke free. By 1880, the use of steam for channeling had sped up the process substantially. As rock cutting technologies improved in the late 19th and 20th centuries, thinner sections of stone could be cut at the quarry itself and transported to saws specifically designed to cut the stone into veneer. Rough cut blocks of stone were dressed to the finished size and left to weather for as long as two years to assess their durability. Dressing finished the faces of the stone with a particular pattern. This process could introduce small microcrystalline uh, fractures at the surface of the dressed stone. Newly dressed stones that withstood the weathering process were used in above ground exposed locations. Stones that did not weather well were used below ground or as rumble fill. Various dressing patterns evolved to suit the aesthetic qualities desired for the building pat dress patterns. 
Dressing and still <coughs> dressing was and still can be done using a variety of mallets, chisels, picks, and hammers. After World War II, computer numerical control, which we know it today for the last 30 years, CNC, milling technologies were introduced into the construction industry. Today, this technology is used to create three-dimensional stone ornamental elements and relief features. Quarries were created to serve local building needs now with this CNC adaptation. But as transportation networks emerged in the 19th century, stone could be transported throughout North America. The most prolific regions of for marble and granite quarrying were New England, New Hampshire and Vermont, and the southeast of Georgia. The Midwest, Indiana, Illinois, and Ohio was noted for limestone. The eastern seaboard also had numerous slate quarries extending from Georgia to New England. The late 19th century shift away from the load-bearing masonry systems forced many smaller quarries to close due to competition from large regional quarries. Although smaller buildings were built with walls consisting of a single vertical layer of stone, most large buildings rarely relied on just a single thickness of cut stone. Two methods for stone construction were used. The first method consisted of assembling two or more vertical layers of stone blocks with the dressed faces being exposed or a thinner layer of dressed stone secured to the underlying stone. The second method consisted of laying out parallel courses of stone and filling the space between them with, with rubble of lesser quality, gravel or even sand. Each vertical row of stone, known as a course, form the bonding pattern. A wall can be made from a series of uniformly dimensioned rows of random patterns. The development of the arch, vault, and dome allowed open specks that otherwise would have been filled with masonry. The use of arches and vaults tended to reduce the overall height of the structure of the wall so that the taller buildings could be constructed. The need for larger mill buildings during the Industrial Revolution led to the use of flattened arches for more open spans. But even those were eventually succeeded by timber framing and subsequently by a combination of cast and wrought iron members that were, <laughs> that were the precursors of modern skeletal steel frame buildings. Garden walls and foundation walls of stone buildings could be laid up dry or with or without mortar. Most other stone buildings construction did not use mortar to fill in the surrounding voids or stone blocks as well as to consolidate any rubble filled between the exterior stone blocks. Mortar was used as a lubricant to help position stones. When the mortar cured, it helped stabilize the stone and seal joints and uh, or seal joints from moisture and other penetrations. Moisture selection was based on cohesiveness, adhesiveness, settling time, hardening time, handling ease, ability to set and harden underwater, the degree of expansion and solubility, color and texture. Traditionally, mortar was a mixture of sand, clay, and when available, lime. Clay was commonly used for mortar if suitable lime sources from limestone or seashells were unavailable. Sometimes, straw or horsehair was added to increase tensile strength. Fine-grained mortar using gypsum instead of lime 
has been traced back to ancient Egypt, Persia, Persia, and France. In the United States, gypsum mortar has been used to set marble trim for decades. Before the widespread inclusion of Portland cement and mortars, lime and mortars were used for applications above water. Underwater, mortar needed to be able to, to cure and not dissolve. The early Romans developed hydraulic mortars using volcanic palooza. This formation of the hydraulic mortar was lost with the fall of the Roman Empire until the late 18th century, when experimentation in England led to the reintroduction as natural cement mortars. The mortars using Portland cement were considerably harder, stiffer, and less permeable, which caused compatibility problems with those mortars that were used to make plastic repairs on earlier building constructions that used sand-type mortar. Much of the success in working with stone was due to the recognition of its physical properties and how it may react to vertical, lateral, and horizontal forces. Stones can be shifted by lateral forces, settlement, construction defects, and poor strength characteristics of adjoining materials. As a result, several methods evolved to secure stone. One method was the use of buttress or vertical piers that were placed perpendicularly along the face of a stone wall to counteract any potential bulging in that wall caused by thrust forces from arches, vaults, domes, and other lateral loads. Another method was that the use of bonding stones that bridged the two vertical faces of the wall were projected into the rubble infill behind the faces of the wall. These bonding courses were held in place by friction created by the weight of the materials being, <coughs> being laid upon them, and they were often an ornamental part of the decorative coursing or bond pattern of the exposed stone. A visible example of this is the use of quans at the corners of stone buildings that act to stabilize the forces occurring there. Lastly, there was a method of incorporating metal ties holding stones together. The most common forms of these ties were bent rods known as cramps, clamps, or dogs that were cemented into the tops, sides, or backs of the stones to hold them together. The rods were inserted and drilled into holes and secured using mortar or lead. The use of ferrous materials for these connections is often a problem when moisture-related corrosion creates stresses in the stone that causes the rod and stone to fail, not being compatible. Stone can meet its structural needs without having any ornamental qualities, but aesthetics led to the use of ornament. Architectural civilizations used ornament to convey a sense of identity, power, and religious beliefs. As construction evolved, opportunities emerged to express a sense of order that re regulated form, massing, and proportion that included highlighting and building craft, as well as the level of sophistication of the building owner and the nature of the community. Stone has natural qualities that make it beautiful in its own right. The aesthetic qualities derive from mineral composition and grain size, overall color, and intrusions of other minerals that can serve as ornamentation. Examples can be seen in the use of marble for wall surfaces that is dramatic in appearance even without being carved into three-dimensional ornamental elements. 
Ornamentation can be simple or it can be crafted into the composition where the individual elements are refined at a high level of detail and the entire ensemble works together to create a magnificent whole. The Greek classical orders strove to, at <laughs> to attain such compositions. The orders were expanded upon by the Romans and subsequently explored by architects and builders into the 19th and 20th centuries. Along the way, other architectural trends of other eras influenced ornamentation. Until the modernist movement after World War I, a consistent pattern of exploration, reinvention, reinterpretation, and recollection of historical precedents and motifs that influenced ornamental stone details had been used. For example, gargoyles on cathedrals were based on the needs for scrapes or scruples to direct and control the flow of rainfall from the roof. These scuppers did not need to be highly ornamented, but many were considerably so. Despite the shift away from the stone as a load-bearing system, the contribution that stone makes to the perception of a building is evident by the way so many materials have been introduced to simulate stone. Even the rejection of ornament that accomplished the modernist movement was a transient phase indeed. The postmodernist movement of the late 20th century revived the perception, if not the actual use, of stone as the supreme oriental medium. Thanks for listening. Greg Perry, the Historic Preservationist, signing out.